Well, today we are going to continue in the book of Numbers, and in doing so, we're in a passage that that I consider to be the most difficult passage in the entire Bible. In fact, I have a a friend of mine who's an atheist, and we have been talking back and forth for about nine months on Facebook Messenger, and if you took your finger and paged up, or paged down rather, to go back and look at all of the conversations we've had, your finger could do this for two hours and you would get nowhere close to the beginning of our conversation. And as we have dialogued on every particular subject, the Bible, God, etc., about once every three months he brings up the biggest obstacle to his faith, Numbers chapter 31. Numbers chapter 31 seemingly shows that Yahweh is not good, seemingly shows that he endorses genocide, seemingly shows that we are to kill off men, women, and children in battle as long as we get some gold and silver and as long as you can take the virgins to use as sex slaves. That is the initial reading of this chapter and why it is so incredibly difficult. And as we look at it together today, I want to try and maybe take something that's completely blurry and make it a little bit more clear. As I've been working on this passage for three months, I don't think I'm going to bring full clarity to it. I'm giving it the best shot I have, but I think I can bring a lot of clarity to it in understanding what's going on here. Because some of the things that we think we're reading aren't necessarily what's really going on in the context. Here's the passage. Summary. The Lord spoke to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. So Moses spoke to the people, arm yourself for war. Let them go against the Midianites to take revenge for the Lord. A thousand from each tribe you shall send to war. Now they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Midian, and the rest of those who were killed were Eva, Rechem, Sur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And by the way, Balaam is back. He also was killed with the sword here. Now the children of Israel took the women of the Midian captive and their little ones and took as spoil all of the cattle and their flocks, and their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt, and all their forts, and they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Now they brought those captives and the booty and the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and the congregation and the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army. He said, "'Have you kept all the women alive?' Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep, yourself, keep alive for yourself all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold and silver and bronze and iron, the tin and the lead, everything that can endure fire, you will put through fire, and it will be clean. You'll be purifying it with the water of purification. And all that cannot endure fire, you shall put through water. Do you see why he keeps bringing this passage up? Do you feel the tension? You see, one of the tension points, I think, in our culture today is not, is Christianity true? But is Christianity good? Can I trust a God that seemingly says that this belongs in his book and this is something to be practiced? And I think a passage like this, you're really pushed into two corners. Either I read that and I understand 
that God is evil and dangerous, and therefore I can't trust him, love him, or worship him, or I can't trust the Bible's reliable that that got put in there. So either I understand that God is evil and dangerous, or I admit that there's something evil and dangerous going on in this culture and at this time that I just don't understand. And whatever that is, I'm going to be humble enough to say, God, it doesn't seem like you're good here. I can't imagine a scenario that that could be justified. And in that case, our imagination is probably our biggest obstacle here because we can't imagine a hostile world and we can't imagine a scenario where anything like this is even remotely close to being justifiable if we even understand it correctly. So there's our choices. Either I understand that God is evil and dangerous, which is inconsistent with everything about His character and the Bible teaches us, or there's something evil and dangerous going on that I don't understand, but God does and is trying to deal with. So I want you to think of this passage like a series of, of mines, four minefields that we're going to try and walk around without blowing ourselves up. We're going to try and uh, maybe unplug the bomb from its detonator while answering the questions, what does this passage tell us about God's justice? What does it tell us about His goodness? And can I trust God even if I don't understand all the details of what He's doing? And what does it mean for Him to tell me to ruthlessly eliminate certain patterns, habits, and sins in my life that maybe I'm not taking too seriously. Let's start with our first minefield. So our first minefield is this. Is this passage about war ethics, things you do at war, or is this personal ethics, things it's telling us to do? That one's going to be pretty easy to answer. It's going to be war ethics. However, then the next question is, is this particular war ethic the normal way that God told people to do war, or is this an exceptional practice that's only done with this particular people at this particular time for a very specific reason? That's still going to be hard to swallow, but you're going to be like, oh, that's starting to make a lot more sense. So the passage begins by saying, take vengeance on the Midianites. Now, immediately there's some sense in which we know this is an exception. Because in the New Testament, in Romans, it says, do not take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So this immediately is an exception because God is saying in this particular circumstance, at this particular time, I am going to use you, Moses, and your people as the instrument of my justice against the Midianites. So already this is an exception to how the Bible typically talks about how we deal with vengeance. Number two, he says, arm yourself for war. So we're clearly not talking about personal ethics. We're talking about the ethics related to how we war or go to war. And then again, he says, take vengeance. This is almost like God has gathered the Navy SEALs together and has said, let me tell you about our enemy. Our enemy has been brutalizing, killing, terrorizing, and raping people for centuries, as you're going to see. We have got to go in and stop them now. Here's the plan. Here's who's in charge. This group that's been terrorizing people for centuries, we've got to go in. Our sense of justice, we can't not do this. We can't sit on our hands. We've got to stop what the Midianites have been doing for centuries. See, our imagination is that God walks some people in and says, I don't like the Midianites, get rid of them. But the Midianites are part of a group of people, the Amorites and Canaanites, that God has been saying for hundreds of years, he's been restraining his justice. 
He's been restraining, stopping their evil as it's been growing. In fact, with the Midianites and Amorites and Canaanites, he's been waiting well over 400 years. That's the first thing I'd say here. These are war ethics, but this is an exception to typical ways they do war related to this group. So if you think we're at Moses, Moses is here in the Red Sea, talking about the book of Numbers, we're going to jump back 400 years to Abraham. Well, God appears to Abraham long before Moses, and he says this, Moses, Abraham, your descendants are going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs, that's Egypt, and they're going to serve the Egyptians, and they will afflict them for 400 years. <laughs> Thanks for the promise, God. You talk about, can I trust God if he tells me that my descendants are going to be in slavery for 400 years? So even Abraham's going to have to ask this question. Also, the nation whom, I, whom they serve, the Egyptians, I'm going to judge them for doing this, by the way. But afterwards, you're going to come out with great possession. So we are right now in this passage seeing the fulfillment of God, the mystery of can I trust God because this doesn't seem right, slavery. But already we're seeing God did deliver him. He did give them great possessions as they plundered the Egyptians. But as for you, God says, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You are not going to inherit this promised land. It's going to be your descendants. You're going to be buried at a good old age. It's going to be four generations from now, in the fourth generation, that they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He says, this land is currently inhabited by a very evil, a very brutal force, Canaanites, Amorites, and Midianites. And they have been brutalizing people who've been praying for my justice, praying for me to stop them, praying for me. But, but I am so merciful, I'm restraining myself. I'm giving them more time. I'm giving them more time to change. I'm giving them more time. And their evil has not gotten to the level that I have to step in. I'm trying to give them a chance to repent and change. Now, already our imagination might change a little bit because our nation's 200 years oldish. God has waited twice the length of our entire nation's history for the Amorites to change. And not only have they not changed, the evil, the iniquity of the Amorites has been growing and growing and growing and growing. And we are now coming in the last chapter of God saying, I'm now, having restrained myself for that long, finally going to put a stop to it in answer to the prayers of all those victims. So let me put this on a map for you. So God speaks to Abraham, depending on who you ask, somewhere between 2100 and 1900 B.C. Egyptian bondage for 400 years. Moses writes Exodus and Numbers. And this battle that we're talking about today is somewhere around 1200 B.C. So this could be not only 400 years. God may have waited as long as 900 years. So before you think that God has just stepped in and angry, God has been patiently waiting for the Amorites to change for somewhere around 900 years before the moment we're in today. That changes the perspective a bit. Number two, the ethics of war, Christians have been thinking about this for centuries, and some of the best Christians have come up with what's called just war theory. When is it justifiable for Christians to go to war? And this is an attempt to really balance out three different principles that are all two. They're trying to reconcile these three ideas. Number one, Taking human life is very, very serious because it's eternal beings made in God's image. However, the Bible also says that states, governments, have a duty to defend their citizens and to institute justice against evildoers, foreign and domestic. Thirdly, protecting 
innocent human life, and defending values of justice sometimes requires a willingness to use force. So Christians have said, so if these three are in contradiction or these three need to be reconciled in the situation, a just war theory basically incorporates this. And it says, how do you know when it's right to go to war? A just war needs to have, number one, a just cause. Can't be just for material gain. Can't be just to benefit yourself. There's got to be a just cause. You're, you're saving somebody from danger. You are, you are instituting something that's a danger to the people in your state. It needs to be a last resort. You tried diplomacy. You tried peace before you got to it. It needs to be declared by a proper authority. Can't just be somebody somewhere says they're going to war. It needs to be a state declaring war against another state. It needs to possess the right intention. We're intending to protect somebody. We're pretending to fix something that's just. It needs to have a reasonable chance of success. Jesus says, consider the cost of building a tower before you build it. For it does not a, a general count the number of troops he has before he goes up against another. And if he doesn't have enough people, he decides to negotiate for peace. Right? That's what Jesus says. And the end needs to be proportional to the means used, which means you can't use human beings as fodder. You've got to say the chance of success of what we're trying to accomplish far outweighs the possible fodder of killing or having people made in God's image killed. So that's just war theory. So there are times in the Bible, there aren't personal ethics, there are war ethics that Christians have thought through is this one of those times that all the evil being done for 900 years to all the inhabiting groups and neighbors, all the people who've been raped and killed by these Midianites, it's finally time to institute justice here. So that's a just war theory. Third, it's helpful to understand that the Bible does not outlaw killing. The Bible forbids murder, which is called unjust killing, not killing give you a classic example. The Bible says if someone's trying to kill you and you're innocent, you have a right to defend yourself because they're doing an unjust killing and you are defending yourself. That's a just killing. If you're a police officer and you see a criminal about to shoot somebody innocent and you shoot the criminal, that's a just killing because you save life. If you're a soldier and again, you are killing someone evil before they can do something against somebody innocent, these are just killings. So I think that's helpful to understand that there's a difference between a just killing and an unjust killing. And, and God lays that out in Deuteronomy and Exodus. Lastly, the ethics of war in Deuteronomy were in effect prior to this moment. So if you open your Bible, you can do this later, but in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, God says, I want my people, the Israelites, to do war totally different from the neighbors. Typically what happens is your neighbor comes and, and you know, stubs your toe, so you go and kill his son. Then he comes and burns your village, and you come and burn down his whole place, and things escalate. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God said, here's in general how I want my people to go to war. Number one, the first thing you do is you make an offer of peace. Now this is crazy. What we think of common sense was foreign. No one's ever heard this before Deuteronomy. People are going to try and make peace before they kill people? Number two, it says, is if at all possible, try to only go militant against militant, try and protect those who are innocent bystanders, even your enemies' innocent bystanders. One of the things that's been so disturbing to many of us as we watch the Russian-Ukraine war is that the Russians seemingly are bombing shopping centers and they don't care who's in it, militant or, or, or bystander. Well, that's just a little taste of the brutality, times 10,000, of what most cultures warred like for all of history. So God says, my people, when they war, I want them to make an offer of peace, try and work it out. If you do have to go to battle, 
then try and protect the innocent, but then you go to battle and you siege the place, get the battle over with, so it saves as many people long-term by making the battle quick and short and decisive. So that is already in place, but in Deuteronomy, he makes an exception. In general, that's what I want my people to do, except for one particular nation, this Amorite, Canaanite, Midianite group. For that group, while in general, the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city and spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, meaning you don't kill them, thus you shall do the cities. However, there's a few cities of this particular group I've been waiting for 900 years that you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. And you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Canaanite. So this is clearly an exception to his normal practice. There's something going on with this particular group. Happens once in Samuel, once in Joshua, and here in Numbers, that this particular one is so bad it must be uprooted. We'll come back to that. All right, so those are just some thoughts. It's not personal ethics. It is a just war. It is the exception to even how they typically ward whatever's going on here. Number two, it can be helpful when you come to a passage to say, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Meaning sometimes the Bible describes uh, biblical characters doing the wrong thing. Jephthah sacrificed his daughter to the Lord, but the whole passage is about don't be like Jephthah. Moses, you know, uh, or Solomon took a thousand concubines and wives, you know, don't be like Solomon. So sometimes you're saying, is this Bible, is this passage describing something that happened as a bad example, or is it prescriptive, something we should do? It would make this easier if Moses was running this war on his own, but God tells them that whatever's going on here is how he wants to do it. So notice, the Lord spoke and said, do this. The Lord commanded Moses, said, let's do this. The Lord said, and it's an ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded. So this is descriptive of what happened. As I said, there's no modern equivalent today because God's not speaking to us about a nation. He's been waiting for 900 years. So there's no prescriptive thing for us today. However, God did tell Moses to do this. So it's not like Solomon and his polygamy. So that makes it harder to understand. Because they're doing what God and the priest told them to do. Well, if that's true, then I guess the big question that comes up is our third landmine. Is this a just killing of the guilty, or is this the killing of the innocent? And I think that's, again, where our imagination comes in, because I just cannot imagine a scenario that this can be justified. And understandably so. So how does Moses answer that? Is this an unjust killing of the innocent, or is this a just killing of the guilty? Here's what it says. They brought the captives, the booty, and the spoil to Moses, and to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab of Jordan near the Jericho. Moses, Eleazar the priest, they all went out to meet outside the camp, and Moses was angry with them for what had happened, for what happened. Look, these women, you've kept all these women, and these specific women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. So number one, he's saying these are not innocent people, these are guilty. So again, we just imagine, ah, oh, some people who slept around a bit, why is God making a big deal about it? So again, let's remember what happened several chapters ago. 24,000 people died because of this. So put on your imagination for a second. Let's imagine in war, in history, 
the idea that these are spies. You always see in these, these, these movies where maybe a, a Russian spy, for example, comes over and infiltrates the U.S. government. And, and we call that treasonous. It's a capital offense, right? And so they sleep with certain people to work their way up to get influence so that they can steal state secrets or so they can you know, inject poison into someone or kill someone. You're saying, oh, well, that's a little different than just a bunch of people sitting on the road who slept around a little bit. We still probably should weigh that higher than we do. But this is in the ethics of war that these women specifically were sent by the king as instruments of, of infiltration. And when they came in and slept with our people, it caused a plague. And notice the word plague. What they did caused a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And it says back in that passage that God allowed the plague, that God sent the plague. That's not to say that it's all supernatural. There might be something medical going on here that may be the reason why God's talking about this. Now, therefore, because of this plague, comes right after plague is the word therefore. You need to kill every male among the little ones. And this phrase, the little ones, is very challenging. I could not find a good answer to this. The word children is used in this passage, and it's a different word than the word the little ones. And in Hebrew, the, word, the phrase the little ones is a phrase. It's just the word taf. It means those who skip. So it could be he's talking about a specific group of skipping prostitutes. I can't find a good explanation. So I'm just going to put a question mark on that one. But whatever he says here, because of the plague, you need to kill at least all the males. And every woman who's known a man intimately. That's why I think there's something spiritual and medical going on here. Why do I say that? Because of the word plague. Think of it this way. Archaeologists have dug down and looked at the research on the Midianites, the Amorites, and they have found that they, in many times in history, burned themselves out because of the level of sexual activity and pedophilia that was practiced in their culture that they actually created these super viruses, think AIDS meets Ebola, kind of mixed together, that eventually burned themselves out. And as they went and slept around with other cultures, they would basically infiltrate this virus into them that would cause a plague that would kill many of them. So that's what history and archaeology shows us. So it could be that what God's saying here is there is a plague at stake here. And in that culture, uh, the women who were virgins would dress differently, different robe than those who, who had been intimate. So that's why they could find them. So it could be that the reason God is actually doing this is because everyone who's been part of this sexual activity and pedophilia ring has this contagion that if not stopped, it's going to continue to spread and kill people. And there's some hints at that as we continue. So a modern equivalent of this might be the way the leaders thought about World War II. Now, you don't have to agree with what America did in World War II or agree with the dropping of the bomb, but and that's not the point of this illustration as much as to think about the challenges of war. You're always weighing different values and trying to see. When we went to battle with Hitler, we knew that what he was doing was evil. And whatever fodder we had to use in our military would be worth what we were stopping. When the Japanese came involved, it got more complicated because the Japanese had a shame-based culture. And a shame-based culture means it is better to die than to surrender. That's a difficult enemy. When it's better to die than to surrender, that's a difficult enemy to negotiate with. So as our leaders began to wrestle with that, they said, what is the best way to protect the most amount of American lives 
and the most amount of Japanese lives is if we did this horrible thing by dropping a bomb on a group of people that was so shock and awe that a group that would typically say better to die than to surrender would say, whoa, let's rethink this. So as they were weighing all the different characteristics, they said ultimately they chose to drop the bomb knowing that the killing of a tragic amount of people quickly would save the most amount of Japanese who would die in war and the most Americans in war. It's kind of the idea here where God is saying you need to uproot this culture with all its contaminants to save the most amount of people longer term. And we think of these little ones who, you know, we think of these kind of innocent lads or whatever age they are, but maybe another modern equivalent to think about here would be like an Al-Qaeda death camp that maybe for decades has been training the children to be suicide bombers and militants. And all of a sudden you've got these children that have an entire culture that have been trained to kill, to destroy, to manipulate, and to brutalize. And God is saying, I need to uproot this culture because after 900 years, it's gotten to the place. It's completely irredeemable and corrupt, and I've got to scoop it out so it doesn't become a contagion. Now, none of these illustrations by themselves is going to help, but I'm trying to engage your imagination to see different things that might bring color to this situation that we don't understand. Which brings us to our last question. The last question, or, or minefield really, on this is the big question I think in your heart and mine. Is God cruel for letting this happen? Well, if you were one of the nations that have been brutalized by the Midianites for 900 years, you're not struggling with God's cruelty. You're struggling with His patience and kindness that He took this long to do it. See? So immediately there's this issue we have that a loving God should not judge. And yet the very next sentence we say is, why doesn't God stop evil? Well, part of a loving God judging means he needs to judge evil. This is the moment after 900 years he's finally judging evil. So God is not cruel. God is just. God is good. He's been patient. But now it's time to contain the contagion. Now, why do I say contagion? There's certainly a spiritual contagion going on here. There's a moral contagion going on here. But I think there's hints at the text that there's a medical contagion going on here. We already saw the word plague, but look at the other things in the back part of the text. So keep alive for yourself all the young girls. So at first glance, this looks like some endorsement of sex trade and you're allowed to take the young women. Well, saying keep alive for yourself simply means bring those who don't have the contagion into your community. Raise them up differently. Teach them a different way to love, a different way to care, a different way to treat people. So you bring them into the fold and why all the young girls who have not seen or been with a man intimately? Because it could be they're the ones that don't have the contagion. Sadly, in this pedophile culture that they had, sadly, they had already given it to the little boys as well as to all the families. And so the only people who were safe from the contagion were those who were still virgins. That might be what's going on in the text. It continues. As for you, remain outside the camp seven days. So when you interact with this group, when you fight this group, I want you to know that when its battle is over, there's some things I want you to do. I want you to remain outside the camp for seven days. And whoever's killed any person, whoever's touched any slain person, you need to purify yourself and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. If you remember from our study of Leviticus, 
we learned that the, the purity laws of, of Leviticus were related to spiritual things. I touch blood. I need to be washed to come into God's presence. Sometimes they were spiritual issues. Sometimes they were just cleanliness issues. How does God explain to a group of people 2,000 years or 1,800 years before germ theory is invented that there's this invisible contagion that they are spreading that if it gets on you and spreads through your community, you're in trouble? That's kind of how he does it is you've got to cleanse everything. And it's pretty serious how much they may be cleansed. Some of that is spiritual, but there's a hint that some of it might not just be ceremonial. It might be medical. So purify every single garment that comes out from that group. Everything made of leather, everything made of goat's hair, everything made of wood. And Eleazar the priest said to the man who'd gone before them, more than that, anything that can be burned through fire, we've got to burn off whatever's on this thing. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, and lead, anything that can endure the fire, you need to put through the fire. We've got to burn away whatever this is. Now again, you're 1500 B.C. You're like, we're burning away the invisible germs. We didn't have the word germs back then. The invisible thing that's dangerous here? Right. But they trusted that God knew something about the evil and danger around them they didn't understand. So they put everything that could endure the fire through the fire. And if it couldn't endure the fire, it was to be purified with the water of purification. All that cannot endure fire. So again, there seems to be hints here that there is something medical going on that God is containing the people from in the situation. Now, I don't know if you ever saw this movie, Outbreak. So in the movie Outbreak, I watched it again during COVID. It wasn't probably a good decision to watch it during COVID. But, um, but in the movie, there's this Ebola-like virus that's released, and they've traced it over to a city in the United States. And there's this kind of horrible moral dilemma that they have to wrestle with. This Ebola in the movie kills within 24 hours. Fast moving. So it's easy to trace, but it's very hard to stop. In fact, it was impossible to stop by the end of the movie. And so they've got this horrible dilemma, which is we have a small town in America with innocent people who now have this contagion. Do we drop a bomb of napalm to vaporize and burn up the virus? Because if it gets out, it's going to spread and kill the entire world's population in about 72 hours to two weeks. If you've never seen the movie, there's this tension in the movie. Yeah, that makes sense. That's the, we, we shouldn't have to... No, we can't kill the men, women, and children in this thing. No, no, no. But if we don't, it's going to kill a lot more women and children. Oh, yeah. And you're kind of feeling this tension. Now, in the movie, of course, they last minute find a, 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 a solution, right? But what if you don't have a solution? What if you're in a moral dilemma where if this gets out, it's going to destroy more life than it saves? Imagine you're an Inca tribal leader. And I come up to you as the Inca tribal leader and I say, hey, the Spaniards are coming over to our land. Don't worry about their swords. They got invisible stuff in their hair and in their air that's far more dangerous. Invisible stuff, invisible stuff. We got to worry about the invisible stuff. You think that's cr- there's nothing dangerous about invisible stuff. <sighs> that's dangerous. Right. Right? So you would say, whoever's saying this isn't good, they're lying to me, they're deceiving me, they're not telling me the truth. Yet history showed that's exactly what happened. When the Spaniards came over, what killed most of the Indians was the smallpox and the other diseases that we brought with us. It wasn't the sword. And I think in some sense God is coming to a culture and saying, this is not normally how we do war. I've been 
generations, centuries worth of patience, but now is the time we've got to contain this contagion, not because I'm cruel, but because I'm good, and because I'm trying to save the most amount of people and the most amount of lives. And I'm punishing this group of people for their evil and the injustice, and I'm answering the prayers of their victims, and you are the instrument of my judgment, something that is the application for them that has no real moral equivalent for us today. So, it's my best take. Four minefields, four challenges, four lenses, different ways to picture what could be happening to help you see that in those two choices, maybe I want to lean the other way. Remember our two choices? Our two choices were, number one, either I understand from this passage that God is evil and dangerous, or there's something evil and dangerous going on that I don't understand. And I would just encourage us to have enough humility to say, there's enough massive passages in the Bible that speak of God's goodness, that God hates child sacrifice. He comes against child sacrifice from Moloch to the infanticide of the Romans. Whatever's going on here must be something you and I can't fathom because we are living in an age that has already been matured and trained by the Christian ethic. Things we think like don't kill innocent bystanders, that is already you're thinking like a Christian, even if you're not one. The Christianity brought that to bear. The idea that you should try and work things out before you kill people. You think the Romans thought that way? You think there's any Roman general that you walk up to and say, how about we try and work things out before we kill them? This is unheard of. In fact, we're doing a series called Kids Ask the Darndest Questions and, and then another series called uh, What If Jesus Was Never Born, Our Exploring Service. And I'm reading a book by an atheist called Dominion. He's a historian, Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, the other Tom Holland. And he is saying, I as an atheist have realized everything about the Christian world that I love, all the ethics of human life and value, all of this stuff came from Jesus even though I don't think he's the way to get to God. So there's so much in history and the Bible that teach about God's goodness. We're going to read the, the, the easy-to-understand passages to help us understand the hard-to-understand passages. So here's my challenge to us as we leave today. Are you willing to remove yourself from the judge's bench? It's, un- it's understandable to have questions and doubts, especially on a passage this difficult. But in one sense, as modern people, we come to the judge's table and we say, God, you got some explaining to do. Or like, I love Lucy. Lucy, you got some explaining to do. But we come to a passage like this and we think we know better how to wage war. We know better how long God should wait. You should wait a thousand years, not 900. C.S. Lewis says it so well in his essay, God in the Dock. He says, the ancient man, for thousands of years, most of humankind did not think the way we're thinking today. The ancient man would approach God or the gods as the accused person approaches the judge. You're the judge and I'm in the dock. I'm in the defendant chair. That's how most people through history approach God. But for the modern man, the roles are reversed. He, modern man, is the judge and God is in the dock. He's in the defense seat. Now, I'm a quite kindly judge as a modern man. If God should have a reasonable defense for himself for being a God who permits war, explain that, or poverty, or disease, I'm ready to listen, and this trial may even end in God's acquittal. 
But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. I do that all the time. God, if you're good, why are you letting this happen to me? God, if you're good, why didn't you let this go the way it needed to go? When I worry, I worry because I don't think God's controlling the universe well, so I'm going to worry how it should go, how it ought to go. I struggle with God's goodness because he's not living life, doing life. Why did you allow bad things to happen? Because I don't think God, I don't think God that the benefits of free choice outweigh the risks of free choice, right? It's a thousand ways we say this. But my encouragement to you is in your daily life, when you're tempted to think God is not good, to think I do not understand this and I do not agree with this and I do not like this, I want you to turn again and say, God, I'm going to let you be judge and I'm not. And I'm going to say there's something evil and dangerous going on here I don't understand, and I'm going to surrender to you that you know best. And you can see the invisible things I can't see. And I'm not going to laugh at God when he tells me there's invisible things that could destroy my life. I'm not going to be in the dock. The second part of that is not only to not let myself be judged, but I'm going to let the judge tell me what to remove in my life. See, we like to think, oh, these invisible particles are not that big a deal. God, really, the fact that I'm not thankful enough, I'm not sure that's that big a deal. God, the the, the fact that that I'm struggling with lust a little bit and pornography a little bit, come on, let's not get a big deal about that. God, the fact that I maybe am not real teachable with my spouse or at at my office, uh, I'm not sure that's that big a deal. But God's saying, I want you to ruthlessly remove this from your life. And he may be tapping you on the shoulder. Time to work on your pride. Time to work on your anger. Oh, it's not that big a deal. No, it's going to be a contaminant that destroys your faith, your family, and your future. You say, God, all right, I don't understand why this invisible thing is this big a deal, but I look at the cross. You know what the cross shows us? God says everything's a big deal. Every little microbial thought and habit we have is such a big deal that Jesus brutalized. But it wasn't the physical torture, as bad as it was. The Romans invented crucifixion to show how powerful they were. When you were nailed on the cross, one of the horrible things you couldn't stop is the birds would come down and peck your own eyes out and you couldn't move. It was designed to humiliate and to destroy. And that was nothing compared to what Jesus really endured. He experienced hell for all of us and being separated from God. And hell is the absence of God. And he experienced that eternally for each one of us because he says our sins are that big a deal. And I died for him. And because I died for him, because I removed the sting of shame and guilt, I'm telling you, when I tap you on the shoulder and say, we got to work on this, trust me. (laughs) I paid for it. I've seen how bad it is. I've been to hell and back for you on this. So let's take this sin I've already forgiven. Let's take this habit I've already forgiven and let's start walking in the light. And let's ruthlessly and relentlessly deal with the things I already paid for on the cross. Let God be judge and let the judge tell you what to remove. When you're tempted to question his goodness, remember, I don't always understand. 
what's evil and dangerous in my life. But he does. Father, thank you. Thank you for the chance we have as a church to wrestle through these passages. I just, if I was an editor, I would have taken this one out because I don't understand it. But Father, we have wrestled as best we can to see how your character and your commandments and your teaching and your justice could be demonstrated here in a way that we can partially imagine. But Father, we're not going to be arrogant enough to say we're giving you the benefit of the doubt. We're going to say we know that you're right and we see through glass dimly. For each person here, Father, who's struggling with your goodness in their life, would you just remind them that you love them, that you died for them, that whatever you're doing in our midst, it is for their good, a good future and good hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, starting next week, easy passages. We'll see you next week.